Fearless Fundraisers. I'm Don Lego, and it's time once again to buckle up for a new episode of Raise Nation, the one and only podcast made to inspire fundraisers like you to continue making impact in our communities, building better tomorrows, and exchanging ideas. So whether you're a trailblazer or seasoned pro, you'll pick up the trends that transform your fundraising. And together, we'll dive into lively conversations and chat with industry-leading fundraisers and thought leaders to explore those hot-button issues and innovative ideas. So stay with us for the next 30 minutes while we inspire you to embrace the future of fundraising. All right, so let's get going. It is a new year. It's season two of Raise Nation Radio, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome our first guest of the year, um, Victoria Monroe from the uh, Alice Austin House in Staten Island, uh, New York. Did I get that right, Victoria? You did. You did. Um, hi, everyone. Um as Dawn said, my name's Victoria Munro, and I'm the executive director of the Alice Austin House Museum. Um, we are a small house museum, one of 23 historic houses in New York City, and we're located uh, in a beautiful waterfront park um, on the North Shore of Staten Island. And uh, I know that Dawn has questions for me, um, but it is very important to lay out just the uniqueness of our site, but I'll let her take over. No, no, of course, I, I want I want to hear it all. And I love the accent, by the way. It's it's such a pleasure talking to you, Victoria, just, just for the accent alone. But tell us about all the, the magic and the beauty and what's so special and unique about, about the museum. I have a million questions for you, but I, that's a great place to start. Okay, so um, as I said, we're located on the North Shore of Staten Island waterfront location. We are in a New York City park and our site is completely landmarked and it is has a national designation as a site of LGBTQ history. Now, the reason for that is uh, our namesake, Alice Austin, who is a Victorian woman born in 1866, and she left us a legacy of over 8,000 photographs. Amazing. Of a changing New York City. She was, as uh, in the introduction, you were talking about fundraising trailblazers. Well, Alice Austin was a trailblazer. She was a woman who broke the rules and lived her life according to her um, own pleasures, if you like, uh, and her creativity. She was a lesbian woman and um, her long-term uh, love of her life, they were together for well over 53 years and they spent 30 of those years living together uh, in what we now call the Alice Austin house. Oh, this was the house that she inhabited with her um, soulmate. Is that right? That's right. And it's wow. um, an incredible story. Um, Alice's mother was abandoned by her father when Alice was tiny. And so she moved in to what the family called Clear Comfort. It was a home that Alice Austin's grandfather bought in 1844. And they made that their permanent residence after 
wanting to seek refuge really from what was a very filthy New York City and they had lost two sons to illness. Oh, oh, so it oh. was a real uh, refuge. Uh, a lot of Staten Island at the time was rural and there was uh, it was more of a, a holiday destination. So Alice is a small child and she moves into this house that's full of adults. So she's kind of the only child. So at the time, her grandmother and grandfather lived there. Her aunt, Min, who was incredibly creative and funny, and she was married to a Danish sea captain, uh, Oswald Mueller. And, of course, her mother and her also her uncle, Peter, who became a chemist. Um, and they're all a very... Uh, eccentric Victorian family, they're well-heeled, and they really dote on Alice. And I think that that's a really interesting point to sort of understand how she evolved to be this real dynamo of a woman who was super interested in technology. She was uh, she was the first woman on Staten Island to own a car and she knew how to fix it. Um, and she created all of these um, safe spaces um, for, for women to be unaccompanied by men. So she was the founder of the Staten Island Garden Club. She had cooking clubs. She was the founder of the Staten Island Bicycle Club. A lot of things that gave women freedoms um, that they weren't afforded we are talking the 1800s and early 1900s, right? We're not talking uh, yesterday. We're talking the late 1800s and early 1900s. I mean, what a pioneer Alice was. Absolutely. And, you know, I call her an accidental activist because just by doing all of these things and creating these spaces that she wanted to be involved in and pursue, you know, um, she really provides this like incredibly inspiring example of uh, a life that is so full and well-lived. Of course, she was white and privileged, um, but Alice was just incredibly, uh, she was a rebel. That's how I describe her. Wow. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's and just, unapologetic. I mean, she just was very yep, comfortable and, and in her own skin and champion sportswoman, you know, uh, she was brilliant tennis player and, uh, Staten Island was the first place in America that the game of tennis was played. And so all of Is that true? Things, really? Yes, it's true. So oh, all wow. things feed in so interestingly to New York city history, um, but the thing that Alice that sets her aside, a lot of women did take up photography during this time. It was a, a, a an encouraged hobby. Also, because it was a new technology, interestingly, women were learning it at the same time as men. So I think, you know, that's quite interesting. It sort of leveled some of the playing yeah. there. But Alice, most women worked in the studio. Um, Alice worked a lot. In the field the studio, so she yeah. was one of the first what we would call street photographers, um, and so she would take up to fifty pounds of photographic equipment with her onto the streets of New York City with her bicycle, and she would photograph immigrant populations at work. Um, and she also very interestingly spent ten years 
documenting the people and the quarantine conditions on Hoffman and Swinburne Islands. So you've got to think this is a New York that's experiencing its highest rate of immigration. So these huge boatloads of people were coming in through what we know as the New York Narrows, and that's the body of water that sits right in front of the Ellis Austin House. So Austin would have witnessed these boats coming through that passage, and our house is what Ellis's grandfather turned from a two-room Dutch farmhouse built in 1690 into a Victorian Gothic cottage. And it was known as the first house on the left. So as you enter oh, New York. Just, yeah, I'll meet you at the first house on the left. Market, And I have a friend who's a, a boatmaster that operates the tugs that guide in the huge tankers. Because it's interesting because it's also New York's working waterway. And he said, no, they still use it as a marker this little white house as first you, house on the left <laughs> as you come in um so it, what a story remarkable location. i'm so inspired to um you know jump into uh the car or hit some mass transportation I, I, i'm fortunate to live close i'm in new jersey so i can't wait to come over to see the alice Austin house i mean you've so inspired me um such history, such amazing history. How do we have any documentation on how, how Alice was able to move day to day? I mean, was there the things that we see today, like ridicule and bullying and public? Like, did, did she experience that? I mean, she seems like a very strong, unapologetic woman who knew she, who she was and had courage and bravery and just so many things to admire about about her, but was it difficult for her? Well, I think it's quite interesting, and it you know it really is. Um, it's a, it's an important part of queer history. It's pre Stonewall, of course, way pre Stonewall. But in the Victorian era, there was a greater acceptance at that time of women having semi. Uh, romantic relationships, if you like. It was sort of thought that it was like practice for marriage. So there was a, in, and some people call it a Boston marriage when two women lived together. Um, but for Alice, like I said, she was a white woman who was privileged. Her friends were very well healed. But that story didn't continue for her entire life. And we have to actually also remember she died in 1952, which is an extraordinarily oppressive time for anyone that was living um in the queer community. Um, How did we go from such acceptance to the hump that we had to get, you know, get over? I mean, I would like to think that we're more live and let live today. I, I hope we're more um, less judgmental, but she certainly had to go through or, or, or journey through a, a time, a Victorian time period where things were more accepting to the complete opposite of that. And she had to journey through that. Well, I think, you know, her stories resonate so much for uh, people today. And we, we try to ground ourselves in, in storytelling and, and all of our educational programs, our photographic art programs. 
Um, and, and, and I wouldn't say it was wildly more accepting. I would just say that it was sort of a different a set of assumptions. Different lifestyle. Yep. Right. Um, but it hadn't been, you know, and when Alice was young, it wasn't considered um, yet a medical problem as, as, as it became to be gay, lesbian, trans or non-binary. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so Alice um, and Gertrude actually lost all their money in the stock market crash of 1929. Oh. And so you have two women um, who've been used to, traveling to Europe every year they you know they were incredibly outgoing as I you know explained um but suddenly they didn't have that set of funds and it was a big shift also in in New York and Alice then we know from records and letters and other things the struggle that she went through to try and protect her home Clear Comfort, as the family called it, um, was also Alice's muse. So it was her studio. So we're also a part of um, Historic Artists Homes and Studios, um, which is a program of the National Trust. And and so she had her studio, her dark room there. She used the grounds um, as an outdoor studio. This house had meant so much to her on so many levels. And her and Gertrude struggled to stay there until 1945 when they were evicted. Oh, they were evicted. Oh, Mm -hmm. so that was about um, seven years prior to her death. Right. And so they did try to take a small apartment close by, um, but financial and health issues prevented them from being able to continue to reside there. And Gertrude's family um, said that she could move back in with them in Brooklyn, but they would not take Alice because they did not agree with the relationship. So Alice ended up signing a note saying she only had $20 to her name, a pauper's note, and she was put in the Staten Island Poor Farm or the Staten Island Farm Colony. When she, oh, this is tragic. Yeah, when she was evicted, she they had Gertrude and her had been very um, active members of the Staten Island Historical Society, and she called their um, director and uh, asked him to take all of her glass plate negatives to protect them because she was thought they could be destroyed. They would be distributed. I mean, and a lot have been lost, um, and they ended up sitting in the basement. Um, at the Historical Society, which is now known as Historic Richmond Town, until a man called Oliver Jensen um, was writing a book and researching for a book called The Revolt of the American Woman. And he was looking for images of women and through his research and and helpers and interns, he came across um, this collection of glass plate negatives, which had nearly been destroyed on several occasions oh. in a basement at Richmond Town. And he was at a board meeting and he said to them, you know, and this is in 1951, if only Alice Austin was still alive. And they said, well, she is. She's in the poorhouse. 
And so he went to visit her and he had enlarged some of the photographs and she said automatically, this is, these are not my photos because she only contact printed. Of course, she knew they were her images. And um, so he was able to sell some of the images to magazines and raise enough money to get her out of the poorhouse into a proper nursing home facility. Gertrude all the while had been visiting Alice weekly, which was a massive journey then for her. And um, they created Alice Austin Day. And they brought her back to what we now know as the Alice Austin house as a part of that day. And those set of photographs that were taken on that day, she took her last photograph. She took the cameraman's camera and photographed him. But those photographs are really sad because the Alice Austin house, a beautiful home, was in complete disrepair. And it got worse until there was an option to tear it down um, and the community rallied um, and managed to get a landmark designation for it. And then ownership was transferred to New York City and then parks. That didn't save it automatically. That was in the 1967 when the original Friends of Alice Austin was formed. That's my nonprofit. We are Friends of Alice Austin. Got it. Okay. And I was going to ask, so you answered the question before I got to ask. So, so let's fast forward to today. What is the, the mission of the Alice Austin house and museum? It's owned by the Staten Island historical society. It's owned by New York city parks. Okay. Parks. That's right. You mentioned that. And so um, the nonprofit, which the original members of Friends of Alice Austin included people like Bernice Abbott, Edward Steichen, Margot Gale, these fantastic individuals. Wow. Um, so the nonprofit, it, it, it cares for, for the house. Parks um, contributes to the upkeep and maintenance of the house. But we um, interpret the interior of the house along with our overarching partner, Historic House Trust um, of New York. And so we program it, curate it. And we also, we have a live-in caretaker, Paul Moakley, who's absolutely phenomenal and is also the editor-at-large of Time magazine. Okay, the big shout-out. Who are we shouting out, Paul? Paul Moakley. Hi, Paul. He is super uh, invested in the photographic community and just an incredible man. But moreover, he maintains all of the gardens in the park, which are beautiful Victorian gardens. So it's a massive undertaking as well as everything else that he does in his life. And he curates exhibitions with me too. So what's the mission? Tell me, you know. The mission mission is to um, inspire Uh, the public through the preservation and telling the story of Alice Austin's life and work and to explore personal identity through photography. So that, that part's really key, that exploration of personal identity. You know, we're, we're looking at this history, which is Victorian coming into early 20th century, but 
really taking that as an inspiration for how we work today with our diverse uh, student populations, our queer teens, our queer seniors, you know, and and telling that story very truthfully. You know, um, we can teach a K class, uh, a first grade class, and, you know, we are talking about Alice and Gertrude's relationship. I don't think you can really separate her work from her identity. And so we encourage students um, to really explore their cultural history, um, depending on the group, their sexual identity, their coming out stories or not coming out stories. It's a very safe space where, you know, we're able to operate on the margins of what museums can do you know and 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 provide this kind of real grounding in history that a a lot of students just have no idea existed because they're so rooted in the now right Um, right right and then you know we're also then a very special place for people to pilgrimage to because it certainly is a destination yeah it's amazing. Uh, it's just I'm just listening to this story, and it's it's really remarkable. What is some of your programming? What 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 does your yeah. programming include? So we we essentially our museum functions as a photographic museum. So we're not your traditional um, historic house that you might walk into and see setups of uh, antique furniture and that kind of thing we were at one time it's not what I see as being a a way to connect to history um antiques have their place but unless they're authentic and really tell the story then I'm I'm not going to fill a room with them I want to fill that room with students um so we maintain two actually three contemporary spaces. So we essentially run as a contemporary platform for photographers. And then we have three historical spaces, which are devoted to all of the themes in Alice Austin's life and work, which was just reopened in 2019. So all of the museum spaces were renovated in 2019 and opened in May that year. Mm -hmm. So that means that we put on three changing contemporary exhibitions per year. Everything is photographic based. Um, And that actually, if we want to feed into funding, well, also we run around about 10 to 15 different and unique educational programs per year. So some of them are long-term. They can go for up to 16 to 20 weeks within a school. So students really get this opportunity to delve deep into this. We work with photographic literacy, um, also spoken word inspired by the poetry of uh, Audrey Lord, who also lived in Staten Island, which a lot of people don't know that she spent 17 years living with her partner, Frances Clayton, just a mile from the Alice Austin house. Um, so we, we bring in models. So we start, we start our story with Alice and branch out from there. Um, 
And then we program the park. So the park's been really essential during COVID. This is a space where people can do yoga. There's all sorts of programs. We're back to back with programs throughout the summer. We have a stage that we often install. We make partnerships with artists. There's art on the lawn. So it's not. Wow. The expectation to experience our our space is not limited to uh, 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 coming inside the museum because for a lot of people, what they, they want is that healing space that is the outdoors, that is the experience of being reflection. in Yeah, a place of self-reflection and Absolutely. inspiration. And okay, so I'm a little gobsmacked at the, at the moment because you have this amazing grounds and museum um, you have programming, renovations, running the house, the, the photography, the story. And you mentioned that the renovations were just completed in 2019, mm-hmm. which is one year before the global yeah. health crisis. Right. So I would imagine that there's a tremendous amount of fundraising needed to go into keeping this keep the up just the upkeep alone plus the look back and the look ahead um and your renovations completed one year prior to what we know is coronavirus so what does fundraising look like and and how are you able to fundraising and can you tell us a little bit about your board of directors and and how engaged you are with them or how engaged they are with you and share with the fundraising space, how you enlisted them to respond in the wake of COVID. Cause that's pretty interesting story too. It is, it is. And, you know, uh, it had been such an, a, a tremendous effort to fundraise to, uh, you know, uh, achieve what was the completed renovation and then stepping almost straight into COVID was really scary. And I know that lots of other nonprofit leaders, you know, felt the same way. How were we going to be considered relevant also? But because the programs are so strong, you know, we, we had a lot of weight behind that, that we'd worked so hard on our programming to make sure that our programs were diverse and representing what was, uh, you know, contemporary outlooks on lots of different issues. And of course, during that time, we also uh, had Black Lives Matter. So it, the face of everything changed so dramatically. And, you know, Obviously, there was CARES Act grants and PPP, which were essential, but fundraising became that million-dollar question. Yeah. Yes, we did. We pivoted. We Straight away, we were one of the first institutions on Staten Island, or I think we were the first, to do a virtual tea because, of course, we had just... We were just about to, I think, within days of the total shutdown, um, have uh, our fundraising event, our spring fundraising event. And so we took that virtual um, and felt like that was quite a success story. Now, by this point in time, everyone's feeling like if I have to sit through another virtual gala, I don't know, you know, just take my money. Yeah, Zoom fatigue. Yeah, yeah, we're we're fatigued. So 
so and and my board has been meeting in the virtual space for all of this time and i you know fundraising is where you really engage your board you you can, or so you hope right i mean oh, yeah, that's so not hope. always so easy it's tell not, me how you do not, that it's, yeah it, it's a struggle but if you don't provide your board with a roadmap of how to fundraise then you shouldn't have those expectations um, uh, Oh, well, let's just stop there. I have to underscore what you just said. If you don't provide your board with a roadmap of your fundraising, you really can't have expectations of engagement. So there's a key to success right there. Provide your board with that roadmap. Right. So I was searching for a tool uh, to do this without saying to them, we're going to do another virtual event or, you know, it was just very hard. You know, we, we didn't have like, a lot of energy. Uh, we had like tons of energy in our programming in the summer, but we did that all for free. We did not monetize that. It was important to give back to the community so that they could sense the value in what we were doing. So then it was it was time, you know, and 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 of course you have to you have to fundraise. This is an essential element of what we do, but it is so essential to board engagement. Um, so very, very lucky. I have an incredibly engaged uh, board vice president. Um, and I brought to her using, uh, wanting to utilize a platform that would help us separate our donate page on our website into something that the board could completely connect with on, on their own individual, you know, uh, in their, put their, in their own, own way. Unique way. Yeah. Each board member brings with them something very different. And it's very. How large important. is your board? How many people are on your board? Um, so it ranges from year to year, anywhere from 13 up to 18, which is okay. relatively large for the size yeah. of my institution. But one of the things that we do is we do not have a large Jews structure. And in fact, I'd almost like to get rid of that entirely to encourage more board diversity and just have more emphasis on what is friend raising leading to fundraising. Friend raising leading to fundraising. Okay. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, Which is how we'll get more, more board engagement, more board members, or, you know, we stick very well, you know, we have a, a, you know, strict set of bylaws, which we stick to in terms of cycling on and off the terms and things like that. But so, yeah, so I discovered one cause and. Um, now, my, when you say one cause, it's the one cause peer to peer platform. Is that what you are? That's the platform? Right. It, Got it. Okay. I was searching for something that I could specifically use for board engagement. I Got wanted it. to really steer them towards something that they could be involved in. So it wasn't me telling them we've got to sell tickets to something, you know, it was more about their personal connection to the Ellis Austin house, their story and and how they felt they could tap their networks best to friend raise or fundraise. Right. It's all the it all goes in the same basket. If someone can donate ten dollars, you've raised a friend. So the the way that I decided to structure it 
for my board was to connect to the fact that we'd done this beautiful new renovation and was to have them choose an object from the collection or a photograph that they specifically connected to personally and write a story about why that object was important or photograph was important to their connection to the Alice Austin House and Alice's story. And so we could use photographs of those items from our collection. So no, you didn't have to have your own headshot. Some people aren't comfortable with that. And you could use that item to kind of tell your story. Um, for oh, example, genius. This was genius and fun. Like who wouldn't yeah, want no, to do it was this? Fun. It was really fun. And it wasn't a heavy lift. I, I wasn't asking them to open their own wallets this time. So what I was asking them to do was create this page that that they would use the platform that was the one cause platform peer to peer to um, share it out with their friends via email, Facebook, whatever social media platforms they used. And then we also created mini campaigns for them on our social media. So we took their finished pages and shared them out like two board members a week. We would spotlight the board member um, and say how appreciative we were as a staff and an institution for this board member and share their little story and people could donate to their page via that. Um, brilliant. This was brilliant and and fun and, and all about the story and the why and the storytelling. Yeah, right. I, I'm, I'm not interested in fundraising that is not mission centric. If it's not mission centric, I don't think it's going to be successful. And so, you know, what makes sense for us, you know, um, and this made perfect sense. And it it also was a chance to promote some of the things people hadn't seen when our doors had been shut or were just open for ticketed entry, you know. Um, and, you know, the idea is to also explode the museum digitally to expand access. So it fed into all of these things that have become such massive priorities for us over this time. And of course, you know, we prioritize access. We were able to um, justify fundraising for technology, which was has always been hard um, in the historic house field. Um, so we feel like we're coming into 2022 really strong. Uh, whilst we're not thrilled about all of the news of spiking cases and things like that. I know. This is three years now and still spiking. It's terrible. Yeah. And, and, you know, my board members who participated and I I said, look, you don't have to participate if you don't want, if this is not your thing, you don't do email, you, you know, um, but for those that did just said, Oh my, they couldn't believe it. They got a great response and it really showed them also the power of their own friendships and connections also the power of storytelling, which and we certainly tell. Yeah, too, but often people, people don't think 
oh, you know, I just bought a house last year. Maybe the the realtor might want to support my campaign. I'm on this board or whatever. You know, they're not really thinking about that. And so I feel like it really got them in a mindset um, to, you know, really think, okay, what is my outreach? What is my pitch? And 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 feel really good about that. It was incredibly positive. Because it wasn't um, a, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a a donate pitch. It was more of a story, a why from the heart. And, it was a um, story, and it yeah. was like you know we we uh, you know we programmed so much in 2021 when so many other institutions were struggling. We're so lucky. We do have this park. We have this outdoor platform. And um, but but yeah, we we. We worked through the pandemic extraordinarily well, and we want to do better this year. It's shown us like where the community connection is, or what's the lack. Who 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 is not coming? Yeah. You know. Um, so you know, and these are all all of these sort of things with discovering through fundraising. They link back into uh, your diversity, equity, inclusion. You know. I'm not thrilled with events that cost $275 to go, right? The other thing that's lagging for so many museums is traditional membership programs. So membership is really down. People want experiences. They don't necessarily need to have a card in their wallet anymore to say I'm a member of mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. right? And so we also wanted to up our membership. So we said, if you donate at the $25 level and up, you we will send you a free membership. So it's like growing our friends at the same time because then every single person that donates at the $25 level or more is going to receive a letter from us with a card to the Alice Austin house and added as a member. But also there was the allowance within that, that if you were a donator and you already had a membership to the Alice Austin house, you're already a supporter. Um, you could give that as a gift, Christmas gift to someone. There you go. So you could give the gift of membership, which often you see in fundraising campaigns, but it was something that I felt was, you know, a lot more connected and at an affordable level. And tangible. You're actually giving something other than just a donation in somebody's name. So yeah, beautiful. I cannot believe that we've gone well beyond the half hour, but the story is just so intriguing. Your fundraising is brilliant. And I know the whole nonprofit community and fearless fundraisers out there are going to garner so much from what you shared today. So I truly, truly um, appreciate um, you sharing and spending the time with us today. Um, So fearless fundraisers, that's about all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's Raise Nation topic and your daily dose of fundraising inspiration. Tune in for a new episode release every Thursday at 1230 p.m. Eastern Time. That's Thursdays, 1230 p.m. Eastern Time. But in the meantime, be sure to listen to all the episodes on Raise Nation Radio and follow the channel that you like best so that you can get the notifications about our new guests. 
Fundraisers are doing amazing things to build better tomorrows for our communities. Their stories are awe-inspiring, as you just heard from Victoria. You won't want to miss a single episode. I would like to thank our sponsor, One Cause, for making this episode possible. One Cause is driving the future of fundraising with easy-to-use software solutions that help nonprofits connect with their donors. Be sure to check them out at onecause.com and visit the resource tab on their homepage for a broad catalog of ebooks that you'll find very helpful. A huge shout out and thanks to my guest, Victoria. Um, I so appreciate the history lesson, um, learning about Alice Austin and the Alice Austin House um, Museum. Thank you, Victoria, so much for being with us today. I truly enjoyed our conversation. Any last words of inspiration? Oh, I, I know I put you on the I, spot there. I, I would I would seek out more uh, from Alice. She's such an inspiration. And of course, I know I will. We have uh, amazing uh, walkthrough tours that we've created of the Alice Austin house. So if you want to taste before you come, just visit www.aliceaustin.org. And Austin is spelled A-U-S-T-E-N. It's not A-U-S-T-E-N. Okay. I was going to ask for for how we get in touch with you, but so aliceaustin.org, A-U-S-T-E-N. That's right. We got it. And we'll also drop that uh, in in the comments as well. Well, thank you again so much. Um, Fearless fundraisers, that's a wrap. Until next time, I'm Don Lego, and this is Raise Nation Radio. Stay fearless out there.